Welcome to an original series, the podcast celebrating our favorite shows behind the paywall. I'm Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me celebrating the world of long-form storytelling is, of course, always and forever, hopefully, my friend and co-host Adam. Good evening. Good. <laughs> I feel like you're about to do an anthology series, and that's your like narrator voice. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to original and original series. <laughs> It's not quite your Batman, but it's closer. No. Yeah, that that needs to be more gravelly, more like, but more like this. <laughs> I am vengeance. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we are still in the thick of Halt and Catch Fire season one. We're on episode seven, entitled "Giant." I'm excited to get into this. This was, I think, like landfall, Adam. This felt yeah. a little different. Um, mm-hmm. There was some progression of the technology of the i guess the mythology or the technology however we're gonna define this but definitely a character-centric episode surprised me again it's been several years since i've seen this i'd forgotten about gordon's kind of push in this episode as as much as it was but i was pleasantly surprised really enjoyed this one this is one of those that i think it left me kind of wanting to push forward into the next episode. So I'll probably end up queuing up episode uh, eight after we record tonight and see if I can figure out some of the mysterious questions that I have in my head at this point. Yeah, I think that's my takeaway from this episode is that if I was binging this series, I would definitely go right on to the next episode because I didn't get fully satisfied or satiated from just this one episode, it didn't feel as fully self-contained as, as you said, there are some questions. I mean, every episode has questions at the end or throughout, but this one really doesn't feel like it kind of wraps everything up. You just kind of want to keep moving forward to see what's going to happen next. And, but as we have uh, always said we would do, and we are continuing to do, we are doing this one episode at a time and not spoiling it for ourselves. So I'm the I'm going to wait just like you until we're done recording to uh, check out the next one. Fantastic. Yeah, this is uh, yeah another one directed by a f- somewhat well-known uh, director, John Emil, who, uh, as I mentioned last time, directed films like Entrapment with Sean Connery and everyone's favorite movie, The Core, which uh, I can't recommend, but it's a movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's a movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe it should have been directed by Alan Smithy at that point. <laughs> there you go. Which I'm just going to tell you this straight up and listeners, you can skip ahead um, 40 or 50 seconds or however long it takes me to tell a story. I was today years old when I found out about what Alan Smithy was all about. So really, I didn't, I didn't know that Alan Smithy was at some point the pseudonym for the vacated director's chair for movies that either lost their director or a director, a series of directors that didn't want their name put on the actual film. It's since kind of gone away. But what's funny, Adam, I was reading about that tonight and I recall an episode of (laughs) Mystery Science Theater 3000, the opening credits of a particular movie they were making fun of. If you don't know the premise of MST3K, it's basically three guys, well, one guy and two alien robots or something making fun of B movies, which is classic high school fun for me and my friends. But in this particular movie, 
they were going through the credits and the main guy was like, these names are all Russian for Alan Smithy. And I was like, okay, that's funny. The fact that you're giving, and I found out tonight, like, and so that, that joke carries such a greater meaning to me. Now I want to go back and now watch that particular episode of MST3K with that new revelation of what Alan Smithy was all about. It's a very interesting story about how that came about. In terms of the the name and and the history of it, it might be a, a worthwhile topic to cover one day. Like cover all of the Alan Smithy films, do the full yes. Alan Smithy filmography, yeah. because <laughs> it's a lot. There's a lot of movies out there, but clearly they're not directed by the same person, just the same right. name. Such a cool little like Hollywood mythology, yeah. <laughs> you know that name. You mentioned the the director from this episode is the same one from last. It makes a lot of sense, considering that in some ways this feels like a follow up to Landfall, the continuation of uh, of Gordon's kind of journey down the giant rabbit hole, I guess we could say. But also the fact that it is character centric, not a lot of movement in terms of the show's main plot. So it kind of makes sense a lot like with Sean Levy when he does his couple episodes each season of Stranger Things, very much character centric without ignoring the plot completely. Like the plot becomes really background stuff for the push of some of these characters. And I think we got that again in this one. Yeah. And we're definitely moving at a little bit of a snail's pace, it seems like, with the sort of technological advancements as they're moving forward here. So that's why I think for me, as much as I love the characters, I'm also just really excited to see how this this whole computer comes together and is it a success and will it ever come out? And, you know, so I'm anxious. That's where I say, you know, if if I was just watching this on my own, I would probably be binging ahead an episode or two to kind of get a little more get more answers and more satisfaction in terms of what's going to happen here. So it's, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's get into that satisfaction that we felt in this episode, (laughs) starting with that cold open, as we always do. There's a flashback to the storm from fallout, fallout, landfall. I say fallout (laughs) from landfall. And uh, then we realized, nope, it's an actual dream sequence. This reminded me of Empire Strikes Back when Luke goes into the cave to quote fight himself, you know, when Gordon right, goes to right. this dude in the street and it's actually him and I'm like what is happening here? This is all kind of crazy. And of course you realize it's a dream because he's barely waking up the whole neighborhood with his loud screaming. And yeah. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I have not, but that would kind of make me pause on what's going on with myself if my wife woke me up saying you're being really loud you're you're waking up the child you're waking up your son and half the neighborhood with your screaming yeah i don't think i've ever screamed in my sleep but i definitely sleepwalked slept walk <laughs> i definitely slept walked walk. in my sleep <laughs> yeah uh as a child more than and not as an adult but yeah i think one time i kind of ended up in the backyard of our our home in the middle of the night. What? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I wasn't screaming, wow. so <laughs> I don't but know what was going on. But. That's, that's an interesting story. <laughs> I've sleptwalked, but I've not left my house. I've, I've gone to the bathroom or gone to another my brother's room at some point, and I'm sure he thought that was creepy, his younger brother just kind of staring at nothing in his doorway. Were you, like, facing the corner of the room, like the Blair Witch Project? <laughs> <laughs> That just freaks me out thinking about the things that I did, (laughs) but I can't imagine going to the backyard. So you've trumped my ace there. (laughs) Yeah. Well, like you said, this clearly was a traumatic experience for him because he's just unable to even get restful sleep at this point. 
and I, I kind of said this to myself, I made a note as I was watching it right here in the beginning that I'm worried about him. In the very first like five to 10 minutes, I just was starting to get a bad feeling about Gordon and this, his state of mind and his health. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and as we get to the end, we'll, we'll find out that my concerns were warranted. <laughs> yeah, I think the same night we're back in the kill room. Joe and Cameron are sharing a meal, TV dinners, booze, and apparently an electrical charge that will kind of electrify their relationship. I'm turning you on. Yeah, quite literally. (laughs) (laughs) It's only a few volts. (laughs) These people. Yeah, he was shaking pretty violently. I was like, ah, just stop that. Yeah, that doesn't seem healthy either. It's like, uh. this, is cl- this is purely a healthy relationship. Clearly, this is yeah. one of the healthier relationships on the show. No, it's not at all. <laughs> These two are, I don't know, they're just bored. I, I think that's the operative word there. They're just bored. You know, when you're drinking alcohol with uh, a hungry man in front of you, I guess the next <laughs> step is to make out while being electrocuted by a live wire. So yeah, there you go. Not the way I would have a fourth date or eighth date or whatever it is they're calling it, but sure. Two in the morning, do you, (laughs) whatever. Bosworth uh, is in his office. So they're not the only ones hanging out at Cardiff. Apparently nobody (laughs) goes to, goes back to their place (laughs) except Gordon, Gordon sleeping and freaking out. Uh, Bosworth is talking to someone about the financial future of the company. I've never even, I don't think I've met this guy, but he's given him the insights and look, company's bleeding. The personal computing side of this company is basically hemorrhaging money. And if something doesn't change, we're going to go under. And Bosworth's like, don't you tell anybody. So I think we're getting a good setup of like, okay, these are the underlying tension pieces that are going to be fueling the episode going forward. Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing that was maybe like the CFO or, or could just mm-hmm. be an accountant that works for the company. But I don't recall this character, so it's it's he's new to us as far as I'm aware, but he perhaps will play a bigger role going forward. But yeah, it's interesting how yeah, he's sharing sort of the dire financial situation that the PC division is facing. But is there another division or other divisions that are still operating normally? Because I, I feel like we aren't aware of anything other than this new PC. It's like that, <laughs> they fired everybody else and... This is all that's yeah. left. It's like, if this doesn't work, is the company going to literally close because they're putting all their eggs in this basket? Or I, I don't know. If I had to guess, I would say that Cardiff Electric, that particular location, operates the PC thing and they laid off all their you know 47 people via, right. via Gordon. But I'd like to think that if it's big enough to support this computer business, computer side... There are probably other branches or other divisions that are not connected to Cardiff Electric specifically. And the only example I can think of right now is that I work in a building that is owned by a real estate company named Heritage. Heritage also has a communications division called Heritage Communications, aptly named. They also had a telemarketing company until about the end of 2019 when they got hacked by some cyber crazies and had this big ransomware and it ended up that part of the company went belly up it it doesn't exist anymore was it libyan terrorists and it was yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's... i don't know how they found me but they found me run for our exactly. money <laughs> 
we they were not hiding plutonium in the telemarketing <laughs> no. company so i don't <laughs> think it was but uh but i mean i think that's kind of how i think of it is if there's if there's solvency in yeah. the company it probably exists in a part of cardiff that is not necessarily connected to the electric side of things so one may be funding right. the other but not but anyway but it still could br- i mean it could potentially bring the whole company down i it's, yes. it feels like if this doesn't work it's enough of a gamble that it could cause the whole company to come you know crashing down around right. around them so i'm actually surprised that Bosworth is as kind of uh, nonchalant about it. He even says, like, keep this to, to our Like, he doesn't want anyone else to know. He's clearly trying to co- not cover it up, but not worry anybody, not let any of the workers find out because company morale is a key part of, you know, keeping a company going. And if they think right. they're on the verge of bankruptcy and this is all, and there's <laughs> no more paychecks coming out in two weeks, then yeah, you're not going to get any work done. Yeah. The whole opening, uh, this whole cold open was really mm-hmm. good at sort of setting up the overall tension of the episode. I mentioned that earlier with Bosworth and the financial stuff. But even at the end, when Joe takes the call in his office at 2 a.m. Oh, yeah. or 3 a.m., yeah. by the way, like who's calling your office at 2 a.m.? And then I think it's big city Dallas. This is the same kind of weirdness that my wife and I laugh about when we watch a show like Melrose Place. And they're like, yeah, do you want to go to dinner? Sure. Meet me at my place at nine. I'm like, What? You're going out to dinner at night. I mean, I know this yeah. happens in New York. I get this. And, yeah. you know, I, I get that, you know, after we podcast, you're going to go out with your wife and have dinner at like midnight because that's normal. <laughs> I have to accept the fact that that's a normal part of big city life. But also just uh, we're older now. So we just, you know, we get tired <laughs> earlier. You yes. know, when you're 21, you're like, it's midnight. Let's do something. You know, yeah. let's go out, you know. Let's go out. <laughs> Like, so if you're Cameron's age, it's like, you know, we're young. Night is young. Let's do something. Let's have fun. Exactly. But he takes a phone call from somebody who is, we find out later who it is, but it's a really cool way to kind of introduce this mystery person, how Joe, his demeanor changes. He starts asking about how you're doing. So we know there's kind of a connection there and he closes the door and Cameron's face as we move into the credits is just so good because there's some insecurity that is starting to creep up. Like She's like, I thought we were good. What's happening here? Is he talking to another woman? What's going on? And then we get the credits. It's it's great, man. And it was really interesting, Joe's voice in this scene. It changed. The way he talked to this mystery person was there was some sort of a tenderness and almost an insecurity in his voice. Which mm-hmm. for him, the, who he's this the most confident person you can think of, and all that was sort of stripped away instantly as soon as he answered the phone. So there was a, that was an interesting dynamic, and I think Cameron saw that as well. Like who is yeah who is he talking to? You know, and then he kind of looks at her and kind of as you said shuts the door slowly. Like this is private. Don't watch. <laughs> don't listen. <laughs> These are like my scars on my chest. You can't get the real story. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So after the credits, we're back at Gordon's house. There's this really fun scene with him rehearsing a speech. It looks like because he's going to talk to the product manager, they're going to be presenting these ideas. And at the same time, Don is getting ready for that trip to Lubbock, that business trip that we got the allusion to in the previous episode. So right. yes, with she's Hunt. going for yes with Hunt. She's going for two days to exciting Lubbock, Texas, which <laughs> I can attest. My wife's from Abernathy. Lubbock's wow. about as exciting as it sounds. It's well, know, Texas Tech University. 
and TI apparently, or one of NTI. their branches, or their executives yeah. are are based. I guess. Yeah, they're getting ready, and then we're in the kill room. I think it's the next day. Yes, yeah, it's the next day. Yeah, and the team is rattling off pretty much all the features. Or excuse me, not features, but all the failures, failures that the machine yeah. is having up till now. It's heavier, it's slower, it can't load software. And Gordon <laughs> is so happy about all this great news. <laughs> he, he just says, do we have a name for it? And even that, they're giving him kind of snarky flack about it. Oh, does software not get to name this? And he's like, just give me the freaking names if you want yeah. to name one. And they have this whole sheet. I didn't right. notice it the first time, but I did the second. I paused. I was like, oh, it looks like name the the machine or something like that. And there's, I couldn't see any of the names on it, but it was like a, it looked like a sign-up sheet for like a, like a potluck. Right. Yeah. And we, we will find out what at least Joe wants to call it shortly. But yeah, it's uh, <laughs> not, not something that Gordon's going to be happy with. So. Yes. Yeah. And then Joe's office, the next scene is in his office he comes in kind of frantic, and apparently Cameron has stolen Joe's car. Or no, not his car, but his keys, because she says the car just turns on when she puts them in. I thought it was a great kind of delivery. Like I just stole the keys. The car turned on when I. When yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't in. actually. I didn't steal your car. Your car is there. I yeah. just stole the keys for the car, basically. Yeah. yeah. What <laughs> happened after that was its fault. You know, when I put the keys yeah. in, it just started. It just does what it does. <laughs> does what yeah. it was made to do. And she's being she's being very uh, immature from his standpoint, especially when he turns around and he sees Simon Church. This is apparently the guy that was he was talking to the night before, a top industrial designer. Yes, and we show that tenderness that you mentioned, that enamored kind of feeling that he has for Simon. And he's also when Simon leaves, he escorts him out. And he says, "Hey, we'll put you in the conference room. We'll be there in just a few minutes." And the line that he delivers to Cameron is so great. He goes, can we just be adult about this for a few hours? <laughs> and then she, yeah. of course, acts like a child. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. McMillan. I didn't mean to do 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 do. And I'm kind of siding with him. I'm, I'm kind of wanting to slap Cameron a little bit like, dude, you're not the only great thing in my life. You're not the only great thing at this company. You're great. And right. as we've seen, you do amazing things. But he's the top industrial designer. Let me have this one. And at the end of right. the at the end of the thing, he goes, "You knew I had this meeting." <laughs> and I was like, "Whoa!" That sounded very much like a dad at that point. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah, she was definitely being very very petty here and just trying to you know just mess things up for him because she knew it would annoy yeah. him and, and upset him because she doesn't know what's going on and she doesn't like not knowing. Exactly, and she didn't know the extent of what that meant to him. Right. And she, she's not meant to. I mean, at this point, we don't know what the extent of that is. Right. But needless to say, we move to the conference room. Joe's loving the design. Gordon's response, it's a pretty girl. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> yeah. And then he doesn't like the fact that the specs were changed to fit this design. Simon right. is clearly not caring. This whole conversation speaks to this sort of what you would call like this bubble or these stovepipes of teams that don't work together, hardware, software kind of thing. And we get an extension of this with Simon, an industrial designer. He doesn't care what goes in the box. He wants the box to look amazing. Gordon is just flying off the handle. He's like, this is not going to work. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll redesign the whole thing to fit the suit. He, <laughs> I think you saw this. 
Simon worked on the DeLorean that is apparently in the shop every 100 miles. So it's not the most reliable, even though it looks great. It's not the most reliable car out there. But it gets a lot of press and gets attention. And, and yes. yes. And this is predating Back to the Future, but it would eventually become one of the most iconic cars in history. So I think the point there is that something can look amazing and be iconic looking, but if it can't work, does it even matter? It's kind of yeah. that age old debate of, you know, does for does form need to follow function or the other way around? What's what's more yeah. important? And as a as a side tangent, I think this is where Apple became successful in terms of marrying the two. Very right, cool design, right. but really cool function in terms of UX and UI, the simplicity of it, the cleanliness of it. And I think that's kind of what's being talked about here early in the stages of computer design is that form does matter because as Simon says, your consumers will soon have more than a dozen choices that look identical to what you'd build. So what will capture their attention? A design that they will be magnetically drawn to every single time they move to touch your machine. He has a point, but there has to be some kind of compromise in terms of you can buy a really pretty box that's going to break in two weeks because it's going right. to overheat and burn your lap, apparently. I think he calls it like a later, he, Gordon refers to it as like a waffle iron. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be a exactly. hot box that you can, a portable waffle iron. So. Yes. Yeah. It's a common debate and challenge that a lot of companies have to deal with in terms of like whether it's industrial design or packaging design, like everything has to fit, but sometimes it's at the expense of the product that you're designing. You know, if it doesn't, mm -hmm. some companies will do that. They'll design what they want to see on the shelf and then they'll say, now put whatever needs to be inside it, make it work, you know, and that's a, that's a real challenge, you know, to be able to tell a group of engineers that you have to work within the confines of this this structure or this this box and i think it's also an ego challenge as well because mm -hmm. you've got so much pride built into the internal and the external that who gives what who's going to push back and who's going to sacrifice yeah, who, and right who's going to blink basically and, and exactly. say yeah okay yeah, yeah. but at the end of the day you want something that'll be attractive on the shelf that'll get people to want to buy it but it, it also has to be something that does something functionally and works reliably. So there, there's a lot. It's, mm -hmm. It just shows how difficult it is to make a product, whatever it is, <laughs> that actually works and is appealing and will get people to shell out hundreds or thousands of dollars for yeah. a computer of this time. They were not cheap. I mean, they're expensive still today, but they were really expensive back mm -hmm. in 1983 in today dollars, you know? Today dollars. Whatever yeah. today is, depending on when you're listening yeah. to this. Yeah. Joe reveals that the name of the machine is going to be called the Contrail. And every time he would right. say that, I kept thinking Entrail because I don't know why I kept <laughs> thinking that, but that's even a worse name. I think even in <laughs> Contrail, Joe missed the mark here. And I, and I say that as someone who I'm not an expert in advertising, but I think he overthought the idea that we're going to leave the competition in the dust. And I love Gordon's response. He basically says, no, we are the dust. We, <laughs> right. we are the... We're the back end of a plane, if you're going to call us the contrail. And I, I don't think Gordon's wrong when it comes to that kind of imagery. You're the, uh, the refuse or the, you're like what the plane is <laughs> pooping out in the back. <laughs> the wake? I mean, <laughs> to call yeah. it the, what? Or as the conspiracy theorists believe, it's the chemtrails that are- you The know, chemtrails, yes. Coming out of yeah. the planes and getting us all sick. I don't know what they think, but- Yeah, keep it, can't have babies, that kind of thing. 
Yeah. Um, you know, if it was called the chemtrail, I guess the advertisement could be the computer for every conspiracy theorist. The chemtrail. There you go. You know, there. And they might actually sell really well. You know. Yeah. Well, Simon's not impressed. He doesn't have any time to waste, and so he takes off. Joe's like, dude, dude. He doesn't say dude. He, that's me interpreting. But there's clearly <laughs> something deeper here. We get a little hint yeah. in the first part. Now there's a little conversation that it's a great camera angle because we see Cameron in the foreground looking at this conversation that we can actually hear. That's a really interesting filmmaking decision where we're normally used to muffled sounds or just, I guess, uh, lip reading, but we get to hear the conversation, but we get to see it from her perspective so far away. And clearly, they have some romantic history that is unresolved, at least according to, to Simon, it seems like. And so he yeah. isn't having it, and he takes off. And is she able to hear him here? Is that what you're—or you, is it just that, that we have this sort of omniscient point of view where we can hear, and we see what she's seeing or feeling as a result of just that proximity? Yeah, I was just kind of wondering what, what your thoughts were. I think it's the latter, because— Physically, she's too far away to hear right. how he's talking because he's not talking very loud. He's talking right. sort of a, a voice like we're talking right now. But I think she's picking up on the body language. She realizes something interesting is, is happening. There's here. something yeah, deeper going on here than this isn't yeah. just him meeting this industrial designer for the first or second time. There's something more to it. And doesn't yeah. he say, uh, doesn't Simon say, what's with a girl or something like that? Which again, I don't know yeah. if, if she heard that. I don't think she did. I don't think she did either. But we're getting a lot of information about Simon and his jealousy or unresolved whatever with Joe. And I guess that kind of confirms the fact that Joe was not just being a good salesman a few episodes before that at the very least, it seems like he's bisexual yeah. up to this point yeah. and is choosing to be with Cameron at, at this point. So I guess I can feel better knowing that there's some authenticity to his attempt to seduce someone of the same sex, that it's not just a sales pitch or right. um, manipulative tactic, that there is some kind of something there that's consistent. Right. It's also at this point that Joe gets mad at Gordon in that room. Gordon says, Why don't you just call it, you know, call it the, call it the Cardiff Giant. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like that's giant. Stuff. Is it because yeah. it's heavy? Is that is that what we're doing here? And then Joe confronts him in his office. He said, you messed everything up, which he didn't. Because it didn't look to me like Simon was even going to roll with this. I think he was just there to poke at Joe a little bit. But Joe tells Gordon, I think you act like you can't see it because the truth is you can't do it. This kind of maybe sets off something in Gordon that was yeah. sort of sparked in the last episode and in that very beginning section where... He starts going down this uh, really interesting path that, as I said before, I wasn't expecting. It seemed like he was hanging on by a thread at the end of last episode. And maybe right now that thread just snapped and something is not well in his psyche at this point. He's just starting to go down a really disturbing path. And as we'll see, his home life is uh, sort of a disaster. Yeah. He needs Donna, who's not there. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> And she's hanging out with uh, with Hunt there in the hotel lobby. And she's excited about the business trip. Can't disagree, man. Love a good business trip. Love checking into the hotels. Love 
going to Walmart and getting my little snacks and stuff for the week, you know, living off peanut butter and whatever so I can have my per diem <laughs> so I can save up for that one big meal at the end of the week right. at some fancy place like, you know, like Strokers or something like that. No, I'm just kidding about that. But <laughs> but no, I, I, I get excited when I get to travel, whether it's driving or flying. Uh, if it's, I've gone to Altus, Oklahoma, which has nothing to offer except an Applebee's and and a Hampton <laughs> Inn where I sure. spend most of my time. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, I can I can definitely connect with Donna here and the excitement that she's got. Yeah, and I think it's partly because she's excited about being part of something that's not normal for her. Right. Yeah, she's being invited into a pretty important meeting with executives from TI, and I think that alone will make her feel good about herself that she's mm-hmm. that she has value. Aside from just it's fun to go on a trip, it's fun to change your surroundings, yeah. like you said, you know, just get out. And yeah. I think she needs to get out. As we've learned, she's kind of the super mom doing everything, working, taking care of two girls, basically taking care of Gordon and the house and everybody. You know, she's somehow keeping it all together and still looks like she gets plenty of rest (laughs) and (laughs) is uh, always not not on the verge of snapping like Gordon. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) How does she do it? Well, she's holding it together and uh, Gordon is not. We're back at Gordon's house. This is a great close-up shot. He's in the fridge looking like mm-hmm. we do, uh, typically when we're looking for food. And I <laughs> yeah. love the close-up of his face showing this dent- discontent that he feels. I don't know if that's a particular kind of shot where you have that extreme close-up to just create that little fun little tension. And uh, you know the girls are like, hey, mom's got lasagna in the freezer. We could thaw it <laughs> out and we could play while it's cooking. And what does Gordon do? Well, he just takes it out and throws it in the garbage. And he's like, we're going to make our own dinner. In a very defiant way. Like, no one's going to tell us what we can and can't do. You know, it's like, <laughs> and again, why did he throw it away? Just leave it in the freezer. You might want it later in the week. You yeah. Know, when you don't feel like it's cooking. lasagna. Just, it's perfectly it's good. good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just put it back in the freezer. And then if you want to make some fancy meal or not fancy meal for your kids, go for it. If it just... Why throw it away? Why waste food? Yeah. He's just being defiant. Yeah. <laughs> One of his daughters says, Mommy's going to be mad. And he goes, Mommy's not here. It's such yeah. a great, just like, <laughs> yeah. just a little, yeah, she's not here. It's cool. It's like he's been <laughs> waiting for this chance to show his girls what it's <laughs> like shine. when daddy's in charge. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're going to go crazy with daddy. <laughs> <laughs> you thought mom was fun? You just wait. Watch this. Yeah. <laughs> Hold my beer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next, we're in Bosworth's office, and he's getting a divorce. This was a surprise. I've never, yeah. we've never met his wife. I don't think. I don't Dad, think we? so, unless she was in one of those scenes, like when they were smashing the car. Like she, you know, maybe she was around at some of the company functions, but maybe I don't think we were ever introduced to her. Were we? I don't think so. I don't remember her. I mean, I remember. Yeah. Apparently, she cooks really good pork chops. Right. She's been referenced several times, but not yeah. seen. Yeah. Yeah. I stopped the episode to just catch some of the details. Apparently, her name is Virginia Ann Bosworth. And I looked up the address where they live. It doesn't exist, of course. But I was hoping <laughs> that it might show up. And I was like, I want to go visit Bosworth in Stalker. Dallas. Yeah. <laughs> He's not on Facebook either, apparently, because uh, <laughs> it doesn't exist. <laughs> he, he was on Facebook uh, until about 80 
six, then he got off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then he joined MySpace. Yeah. <laughs> he, went, he went backwards in social media. Right. He was on Instagram and then went to Facebook and then MySpace. Yeah. And then when we got to the day that MySpace was invented, he was off social media completely. Completely. That's when he decided he had enough. <laughs> He'd had enough of this nonsense. <laughs> the, the future sucks. <laughs> well, Joe pops in and tells him that they need to get Ken back. Apparently, Ken is the backup industrial designer and he's like what what's going on you know <laughs> yeah how this guy ever became an industrial designer is beyond oh me. he's the anyway, worst we'll, we'll get, get to, to him that. in a little bit yeah yeah we go back to the ti conference room or the business hall or whatever it is where they're holding this uh this little conference and hunt is listing off all the problems that this computer is having and it's referred to as the 99. Now, you offline before we started recording sent me yep. a Wikipedia entry. This computer actually existed. This was not yep. a fake computer that they made up. This was actually a, a TI computer that went defunct in the early 80s. Yeah, in 84, about a year after this uh, time that this episode or this series is taking place. So, yeah, from like 79 to 84, it was a product that TI made. And it was an early personal computer that you hooked up to a monitor, had like a calculator style keyboard. You know, what? It, it was nothing fancy. It was, when I looked up the article, it was about $525 at the time. So adjusted for inflation, it would be like 1500 today. So not cheap, but it sounds like it's not working very well. And that they uh, were trying to decide if they should share the truth. I think Donna wanted to share the truth with the executives that it's really not performing the way they they needed to and i think hunt's kind of like well i want to keep my job <laughs> you know like he doesn't want to doesn't want to tell them the truth because he's you know watching out for his, his own back well and that makes sense but i think that he sees value in a new voice coming in because right. it's not his it's not him grooming someone or having somebody rehearse these lines that he's already said i mean she interrupts the conversation and says look it's not working it would be better if T.I. just dropped it from its catalog altogether. And she's got the clout to do that because she's not an old face. She's not someone right. that has been sort of drinking the Kool-Aid for all these years. And he's really impressed with it. You know, he even tells her, stop beating yourself up. Take the credit. You did really well. I mean, this is consistent with what happened in the actual uh, you know, real world with this thing. So when I look at the 99, I can know that yeah, you're, a year or so later, it was gone. So we're out of production. I do have one question. What are your thoughts on this? Obviously, we know historically this computer was on the way out, as we just mentioned. But do you think that Donna was secretly trying to remove the TI competition from the PC market because she wanted her husband's computer to have less competition? Do you think she had like an ulterior motive here or subconsciously she was trying to do that? Or was this purely just her doing what she thought she needed to say for her job? I think it's the latter. I mean, she's not someone yeah. who feels nefarious and is trying to give her husband the one-upmanship. Like, she has value yeah. in TI. I don't see her at this point being like a spy for uh, for Cardiff Electric. <laughs> and in all honesty, as much as we see Hunt saying that they need to get out of the PC market altogether, which was a great move, by the way. They became a calculator company that mm -hmm. I lived and breathed, my TI-85, TI-83, or whatever it was called. I think that she saw that too. She would almost see TI as a more viable option for being a computer company than Cardiff Electric because at least they have a tangential way into the PC market with 
calculations, that kind of thing. So I don't think that's the case. I think she really was offering up a really more of a consumer centric opinion that look, we're throwing so much money into this and it's not even worth it. We should probably just drop it from our catalog, which indicates that they have a lot of other stuff that they can offer. So it's not the money maker that they need. And I think Hunt takes it that one step further and says, we just need to get out of the PC market altogether. And a year later, we find out that that's the case. So Hunt and Donna were (laughs) very much pivotal to TI becoming what it is today. So we can thank them. And and according to Wikipedia, they sold uh, 2.8 million units of this particular home computer. So Wow. Yeah, that's more than I I thought, but that's over like a five-year period. But yeah, in terms of, like you said, calculators, they clearly have sold many, many more millions of calculators since. So they probably did the right thing. Growing up in high school, you had to, when you got into high school math, you had to have your TI graphing calculator handy with you at your desk. You know, Mm -hmm. now now no one knows what that even is, but... (laughs) Because they got their cell phones. Right. Call people. Does everything. (laughs) It does the calls. <laughs> yeah. And they decide they're going to celebrate with dinner on the company card, which I also affirm and agree with. That's awesome. Right. Uh, per diem or, you know, expense accounts. Fantastic. <laughs> so then we move back to Gordon's house. He is making a stew because that's what powerful men do that have confidence. And <laughs> the whole bit with the phone and him hanging up on Joe is brilliant. It's such a really cool physical comedy moment where he's talking to his daughters, trying to inspire them. The phone rings. Hello? Hi, Gordon. I've got Joe for you. (laughs) It's just like he's not even having it. And then he goes on talking about how his great-grandma Iris was a hard worker, that she actually dug gold back when she came over for the gold rush. And it's almost like it's dad-inspiring. It's not like inspiring like Steve Jobs or Joe McMillan. This is a very dad-inspiring speech, as is appropriate, because he's a dad inspiring his daughters. And he finishes it off after he lets them eat the stew. He says, we're all tough. And I think he's just, I think he's giving himself a pep talk in addition to giving them one. He needs somebody to give him a, a pep talk right now. He's just going through a lot. He's kind of losing it. And then there's that final shot of the dripping faucet. And that's when I'm like, he's really going to snap, isn't he? Like that dripping is going to, it's going to like drive him insane or something. I I was really getting nervous at this scene about what was going to happen because he just, his, his performance is so good too. He's, Mm -hmm. he's really playing that kind of like, almost like he's so hyper, you know, with energy and like, he should be exhausted because he's not sleeping, he's having nightmares, but he's just like doing a million things and speaking quickly, but something is off. You know, he's just, he's not himself. Yeah, he says, Yes to cookies, yes to games, yes to daddy's wonderful stew. You guys go wash up. And we're like, all is right with the world. And that dripping faucet finishes it off. Like, all is not right with the world. We're about to get chaotic. (laughs) (laughs) So then we move over to Joe's apartment, and Joe is so excited about going to that strip club called Strokers. <laughs> Insert sarcasm here. Jesus. Why is it called yeah. Strokers? Yeah. It, well, and I think it just speaks to the polar opposite personalities of these two industrial designers. Right. And kind of what they see as like 
good taste. You have one guy who comes in. And apparently they were going to a, a gallery, like an art gallery for a photo. Yeah, like an exhibition. Photographer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, high class champagne. And then you got strokers over here. Uh, right, right. <laughs> the casting is great, by the way, with this guy. But this scene's pretty pivotal because it allows us to get to know what the history is with Joe and Simon, that apparently right. they knocked boots or whatever uh, <laughs> whatever Cameron calls what they did. I don't care if they slept with the guy. But they yeah. travel all over sh- Europe, and right. then like it month. was just kind of over. Yeah. It's one of those things where I think it provides perspective for her. Clearly, there are some hurt feelings uh, he takes off, and then she looks at Simon's designs, and she's pretty impressed with with uh, with what he's come up with. Yeah, I don't I don't think she was expecting to be impressed, but she was, and that's that's kind of key here is that she realizes this isn't just some guy. This could be the guy. This could be the person <laughs> that can really take our computer to that next level. Well, I'll tell you what I was impressed with was Joe's closet. It's immaculate. It's got all the suits. The ties are rolled up on little like shelves. Right. Like, all my clothes are stuffed in there, and I'm hoping they don't get yeah. wrinkled. This is a single guy's life right here. That's the thing. When you don't have any kids and, and you have room to do what you want, everything can be perfect. Yeah, as soon as you start to have kids, you start to realize, yeah, I'm not going to be keeping a, an immaculate closet anymore or, or an immaculate anything. <laughs> yeah. It's because as soon as you try, it just gets messed up again. For sure. So just kind of live with the madness and the mess. Yeah. I do like that this scene gave us a little bit of tenderness from Joe. He apologizes to Cameron. So I'm sorry I snapped at you earlier. Mm-hmm. And he says, that guy just gets to me. Yeah. And that line comes back again later, which I think is fantastic in terms of script writing, how you can bring things back like that. Kind of like when a stand-up comedian drops a a joke in the very beginning of his set. And then he kind of refers back to it at certain times to kind of transition to, to different uh, points in his set. That's, it's really great. So now we're at strokers (laughs) and I feel (laughs) awkward. Uh, Not really because they're strippers, although that's probably not where I really want to be visually, but Kenny is the worst. Like he is just awful. Like he looks gross and just dirty and he kind of reminds me of Steve Buscemi in the face. I think the eyes are kind of like yeah, yeah. Buscemi-esque. This guy just looks like he's trouble, and I don't really want to yeah. hang out with him. When the scene started, I was like, wait, who's Kenny? And I, I thought I missed something. I was like, oh, that's right. He's the other industrial designer. Because they didn't really, it was sort of a passing comment, you know, like that they had passed on this other guy to go with, with Simon or to, or to pitch Simon, I guess. And yeah, I was like, who, why are they meeting this guy at this strip joint? Yeah. Like I did I didn't understand what was going on. But it was it was a humorous scene nevertheless. So I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. A couple of things that I I caught, Joe's sales pitch that he's so good at mm-hmm. feels very forced. He finishes it by saying, Your design is and he does a tense face friendly. Yeah. Clearly he doesn't yeah. want a friendly design. He was Kenny trying to be complimentary, it. yeah, but he couldn't yeah. come up with the right <laughs> compliment and then bosworth is asked by kenny how's jenny now earlier in the episode i thought he was talking about his wife but his wife's name is not jenny his wife's name is um virginia ann that's her that's his wife's oh, okay. name. okay so i'm asking the question you know who is jenny is this his daughter is this another relative what what's going on i think that was intentional because again i want to say that name comes up near the end of the episode. And I'm just asking myself again, 
there's a disconnect here. One of the mysteries I want to get right. solved by watching mm-hmm. the next few episodes is, is Bosworth cheating on his wife? Is this why he's getting a divorce? Yeah, that's a really good point. I didn't even think about And I was like, and even if he was, why does this guy Kenny know who Jenny is? You know, right. what relationship does Bosworth have with Kenny? Other than I guess they've done some work together over the years. He has been one of their designers in the past but it doesn't seem like bosworth cares about this guy or really likes this guy that much it just seems like they put up with him because <laughs> there probably aren't a ton of people to do what he does in that area so you work with what you have right so we move from one fancy place strokers to an actual <laughs> fancy place the art exhibit <laughs> I gotta say cameron looks really good as a quote unquote adult she's got the hair styled. She's mm-hmm. got a nice red blazer. Looks like I think what Mackenzie Davis would look like in right. like, day-to-day stuff. Like this is what she would wear to job interviews and whatnot. So <laughs> right. I'm seeing I think I'm to, seeing to an awards Davis. show. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. She's ready yeah. for the Oscars. She's ready for the Golden Globes. It is funny though that she would choose to dress up. She's such a rebel that you would almost think she would show up in her torn jeans and her tank top and be like, I don't care. I don't need to dress up. But she clearly wanted to make a good impression to try to get this guy, Simon, to reconsider. So yeah. she was going way out of her comfort zone <laughs> from a from a wardrobe standpoint and also in a social environment, I would say, too, to try to yeah. do something good for Joe. It, it kind of shows how much she does care for Joe and, and also the project that she made this grand gesture without Joe's awareness of it. Yeah, but the interesting thing here, Adam, is the fact that he really doesn't let her get the upper hand at any given point. He says, what can I do for Miss Rainbow Bright? Which I thought was a great way to kind of establish, I know what you're doing, just go ahead and Mm -hmm. make your pitch so I can say no. And then he tells her that he left Joe because he told him that he loved him, and then he took off. I understood it, but it made it sound like Simon said, I love you, Joe. And then Joe made a face. And then he said, okay, I knew it wasn't going to work out. So I took off. Well, that was your fault, Simon. I mean, you really kind of dug yourself a hole at that point because you took off. But then he says, in the end, I think Joe got bored. And he warns her that he may do the same thing to her. I don't really buy that from Simon. Not that Joe wouldn't get bored, but I don't buy the fact that he's making himself out to be the victim because again, he left. And so without really kind of getting context about their intimate relationship in Europe, it sounded like they were getting close and that he shared this vulnerable moment with Joe. This is sort of an issue I have with the writing. It didn't sound like the way he described it script wise, that I wasn't convinced that he should be the victim here. I thought saying based on Joe's face, I knew I mean, tell me what he said. Tell me what he didn't say. And Joe just looked at me. And at that point, I knew it wasn't going to work out. I I don't know. I I wasn't sold on it, I guess, is what I was getting at. I think it it comes down to, in any kind of relationship or breakup, it's sort of what that person's point of view is. So clearly his point of view, he didn't do anything wrong. He opened up and said he loved him. And his lack of response or inability to respond in kind in his mind, made him realize this person can't commit or can't open up. You know, they're emotionally unavailable, whatever you want to call it. So he just kind of decided this person isn't worth my time. I'm going to leave. So it, again, it's all their own point of view. I think if 
if we were to have witnessed the scene, we might have a better understanding of what really transpired. It's just kind of his own interpretation of those events. Is sure. Sort of, uh, yeah. I think that ultimately Simon felt sort of snubbed. Like, if this person can't even say they love me back, then what am I wasting my time with them for? He just bolted. But, of course, Joe might have his own perspective on this. He might. And I picked up on some of that. I just don't feel like I got enough of it to convince me right. that Simon was the victim. And I think that might be by design right. because of a conversation that Joe has with him later. Right. Because I, I don't think we're supposed to feel that either of them is a victim. I think it just didn't work out for both of them. Right. It was maybe the wrong time, wrong place. They were clearly much younger. Ten years ago, we learned in, I think, the last episode that Joe is 35. So this would make him only 25 when this happened. So clearly, right. when you're 25, you don't know what you're doing, you know, especially with relationships. You're, you're just sort of figuring things out. And he was in Europe. Did he say they're like backpacking around Europe? I don't know. But Joe clearly wasn't in any place to make any kind of commitment at this point in his life. And I bet the same thing would be the case with Cameron. I think if, if Cameron said, I love you, I don't sure. know if Joe would would respond the same way either. Yeah. Yeah. And it was the 70s, so we can give him a little bit of grace for that. That's true. I keep forgetting that this would have been 10 years. So this would have been 1973. Yeah. That's a long time ago. It was. (laughs) (laughs) Back at Gordon's house, the girls are helping him fix the sink, and they have their magic flashlights from the previous episode. I don't know if they still have names for them. They didn't mention them to us. (laughs) They go get in their PJs per Gordon's um, request. Apparently, he made a game out of this, which I confess, I've done that with my son before. I've done a chore like, hey, let's see how many pieces of trash we can pick up before mom gets home or whatever. And kids get older, they start seeing right through that, that you're like, you're paying (laughs) me for this. This isn't a game. This is a chore. Donna calls. Gordon is, I don't know if he's upset. Well, he's upset, but he just kind of like throws up all of his like bad day to her. I've done this before too, not maybe in that kind of angst. Right. Without asking how she's doing. Yeah. Exactly. It's been one-sided. And both of us have done that to each other where I'll say, how was your day? And it's just like, for like five minutes. And one of us forgets to say, well, how about your day? How was it? Right. And he doesn't mention the kids. Like he's really Mm -hmm. only focused on his computer. And I think that's a mistake. Yeah. And it, I think it was a mistake to talk to her about that because he's not paying attention to what he's doing to the sink. I think he's trying to unscrew the faucet with a knife, which is clearly good thinking there, Gordon. No, not at all. And he cuts himself. Yeah, I saw that coming, you know, as soon as he started fiddling with it. I was like, he's yeah. totally going to have an accident. That's a gross looking sink top too by the way like the faucet yeah. top i mean there's a lot of little gross stuff in there so kudos to the production design for making it look authentically nasty yeah and he cuts his hand drops the phone donna says gordon what's wrong and he goes i have to go and then he doesn't hang up the phone i know he I doesn't know. hang up the phone like what are you doing <laughs> he's this is where i'm like he's really just lost it because the first thing i would say is i, I just cut my hand i cut my hand you would yell that out so she knew why you yeah. dropped the phone. He doesn't even tell her what happened. He just leaves. He just And the cord is like stretched across the middle of the, the kitchen as well. Just like yeah. creating a, like a, an obstacle. Which I've had that happen to me before too, where I've walked <laughs> around the kitchen with that long cord and my, my mom has been like, come back to the phone, please. You're yeah. like making a, like a limbo stick out of this and I don't need that <laughs> while I'm cooking dinner. Right. But 
the fact that he is conscious of it is I think what makes it really weird. It's like he picks the cord up and goes under it. It's not like he's, oh, I need to hang the phone up. I think it goes back to what you said. Not talking about the kids, not asking about Donna. He is one track minded. Right. He can't think of anything other than that computer, you know, and well, or even just what if that track changes, if he goes right. from, because this is what happened. He, you know, he is making the stew. He's excited. The faucet starts leaking. So now he's focused on that. I don't even know if they had dinner, by the way. I think they may have skipped right. that. And now he's talking to his wife, going back to the computer, cuts himself. Now that's the thing that's on his mind. Mm-hmm. And I think that in that frantic sense, he's just constantly in one space at a time, which can be healthy. I, yeah. I also kind of feel like, yes, he's in those spaces at one at a time, but he's also not fully present. And that's why everything's kind of Great going point. wrong because he's yeah. sort of so, he is trying to fix this thing, but his brain is still probably running in a hamster wheel about, oh, are they going to mess up my design by changing the, the packaging that it comes in or the box that it goes in? How am I going to fix that? What am I going to do? Like, he's just thinking about this in the back of his mind while he's doing all these other things around the house. And I just think right. he can't focus on anything. So he's messing up. He's making mistakes. He's hurting himself. He's forgetting to hang up the phone or just doesn't even care. He's in a completely distracted state is kind of the way I, I'm taking it. Yeah. I mean, that's a great observation. Great observation. We have a quick scene back at Stroker's. They've made the deal with Kenny. <laughs> Every time you say that, I'm just like, it makes me laugh. I'm sorry. It's just <laughs> Stroker's. What, Kenny or Stroker's? <laughs> Stroker's. <laughs> that anyone would call it that. I know. But. Well, and it's funny because after the scene with Joe and Cameron where he says he's going there, the first song we hear is Stroke Me, Stroke Me. <laughs> yeah. Like, we don't need to reinforce that, do we? Do we really need oh. to do that? <laughs> It made me think, too, of that uh, Burt Reynolds film, Stroker Ace. I don't know if you ever saw it. Yeah. (laughs) Again, like, you named your movie Stroker Ace. Okay. (laughs) That was, again, a seven. I think it was the late 70s. It was a different time. Yeah. Maybe it came to be in the 70s. Strokers has been around since, you know, serving you since 72 or whatever. Right. (laughs) Kenny insults Joe and Bosworth decks him. I love this. Uh, yes. Not only because I love seeing a good punch being thrown, but the fact that Bosworth's actually standing up for Joe. This is kind of a camaraderie moment between the two of them. And the shot of them walking out side by side is such a contrast yeah. to what just happened. Like, without even a beat, like, he just did it. Joe didn't even have a chance to sort of respond verbally or physically. Bosworth just takes him down. I was like, go Boz, you know, this is... yeah. And I made me wonder though. I did. I did, was curious. Does he know something about Joe, or is he, was he just sticking up for his friend, his coworker, or you know, I say friend, but they're coworkers clearly, but they're on the same team. It's like you can be on a team, like a, on a sports team. You may not all get along, but at the end of the day, you're teammates. So if someone tries to, you know, take one of your your friends down or your you know your teammates down, you're going to stand up for them. You're going to do what you have to do to have their back. I think Bosworth believes in the vision. Mm-hmm. I think that throughout the conversation, he saw that Joe was struggling with accepting Kenny as their right. product designer. And Kenny clearly showed no respect to either Bosworth or Joe. So I think that was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back when Kenny says, you didn't smile once when all these great looking bodies were around yeah. you. What are you, queer? So I don't think it was about Bosworth knowing his sexual orientation, I really think it was about they have a common enemy at that point. It was, it was just like 
Boz is just thinking, I can't work with a guy who would insult my coworker, my, you know, the guy that I'm working right. on day and night on this project with. You don't deserve to work with us, basically, you know, and yeah, you deserve a knuckle sandwich. Exactly. <laughs> and as they're walking out, Bosworth being shorter than Joe, I thought it was just a great contrast. I yeah, like that. Yeah. I like that Joe's smiling and Bosworth asks him, think you can get your other guy? And he goes, I'm going to try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They know. Like as they walk away, they both have a smirk on their face too, which is great. Kind of the way that they're, they're both just like, that was nice. And that felt yeah. good. That felt good. Yeah. That felt good. Yeah. <laughs> and they both knew that they were essentially screwed here. Like this guy was out. Like there's no going back <laughs> to him now. They already tried to yeah. win him back once, but this is over. So. But they were like indifferent and they didn't care. They did what they did. Now they're on their way out. Then we're back at Gordon's house and the kids had asked him to tell them a story. So he tells a story slash metaphor about mm -hmm. how a farmer buried a giant in a field and convinced people when it was dug up that it was real. And he would display this giant and how he felt incredibly special. And then he partnered with this salesman. <laughs> this expert salesman named P.T. Barnum, who stole the idea and the farmer was left in the dust or in the contrail. I mean, it's such a fun <laughs> yeah. monologue that is like right on the nose of like, this is Gordon and Joe's relationship. And the way that Scoot McNary delivers it, it's done with such passion and disdain. And so I'm thinking about these kids who are like, do they pick up on what dad's doing? Do they pick up <laughs> yeah. on, on his anger? I don't think they do. I think they're just no. enamored by this great story. It's actually a really good story. Yeah. But when you know the background, it adds so much more weight to it. Right. I don't quite know what he, his purpose of telling. Other, again, it's like he's doing this for himself. He's telling them this story. Like they need, they need a story to go to bed. So it's like, I'm going to tell you a story because I want to basically rehash what I'm feeling and what I'm going through yeah. right now at work. So I'm going to tell you a story about my job, but I'm not going to do it with my coworker names. I'm going to do it in the form of a, a metaphor or I don't even know if this is a true story. I don't know if he just made this up. I don't know if you know, but I, I'm not sure. I haven't so. looked it up, but I want to. Yeah. I think I might here in, here in the next couple of days just to do a little internet search for giant PT Barnum and yeah. watch all the, all the search results will come back with like a Holt and catch fire reference. Right. <laughs> exactly. Which tells you it's not a real story. <laughs> right. Or a, it's a real story in that it's a story, but it's not but real. Anyway. For the show written for, for the, the show. show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, historically it's not, it's right. not accurate. So then we go back to the hotel restaurant where Donna and Hunter having dinner on the company's dime. She's bragging about her husband, saying he's brilliant. And Hunt is kind of picking up on this awkwardness that she's telling the story about him and all these credentials. And he's going, why are, you, why are you telling me this? And she says that she doesn't think he's strong enough to deal with the pressure of all this stuff. And she mentioned that it kind of harkened back to their work on the, the other computer before the right. series started. And that she's starting to sense that that's happening again. And I think it... I think it's concerning. Right. She to says it. not again. Like she, like, like I don't think he can deal with the pressure again. I think she says, which shows that he already had one of these mental breakdowns at some point, <laughs> pre-children, perhaps, whenever or earlier in their in their career together, and that she's sort of seeing the signs. Yeah, that it's it could be happening again. Little does she know how bad it's gotten. <laughs> 
while yeah, she's right. been away for like 12 <laughs> hours <laughs> like she's barely gone yeah 12 hours too long so there's a, a quick beat and then they look up at the restaurant piano player and hunt suggests that donna play the piano in the restaurant because they really don't like the guy <laughs> did you catch the weird expression on his face right before he left like he actually heard what they said i thought yes I, yes i i I rewound it a couple of times. I was like, did he hear them say that he's not a good yeah, piano player? Yeah, he's got player? super, super hearing. Yeah. It and it's another it shot, was... sort of that mirrors that one earlier with Cam in the foreground mm-hmm. and Simon and Joe in the background. But again, mm-hmm. like these characters should not be able to hear one another. So <laughs> yeah. in reality, this piano player should not have heard that. But somehow he kind of looks over at the camera or towards them. Yeah. It's very strange. <laughs> he just looks so annoyed. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he just was way. having a rough day and he was like, I need a he break. Have been. Yeah. As most people in this episode are apparently. <laughs> yeah. So Donna plays the piano, kind of a callback to that scene earlier in the season. Uh, this right. is a better angle for her to fake play, but I caught some flaws still, you know, she was going <laughs> up on the keys when she was, should have been down, but she seemed a little bit more energetic. And clearly Hunt knows that she can play the piano, which again goes back to whatever that previous relationship was in maybe high school or when they were younger. So there's some knowledge of her piano abilities from high school. And maybe what's happening now is sort of what we were asking a question about in that scene and that she's a different person. She right. is Susan Fairchild, as she refers to herself in this moment where the guy gives her a $10 tip and says, you're much better than this other guy. I'm like, dude, lay right. off the piano guy. I mean, he's probably not feeling good. Just lay off. <laughs> right. Okay. I mean, come Whatever. on. That's he's his job. 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 Would you be happy if all you did is play <laughs> piano for people while they ate dinner? And you play the I mean, same four songs over and over again? Yeah. Everybody wants you to play Happy Birthday or, you know, or <laughs> you must remember this, you know, from Casablanca. Anyway. <laughs> right. So... <laughs> So then we go back to Bosworth's office and he's asking Nathan for, I think it's called a bridge loan, which I think would be like Nathan just loaning him money that he would, it's just a straight personal loan that Nathan's coming out of his own bank account to get them to calm down. Yeah, it it would require him basically putting up his own personal collateral, whether it's his own cash or, or property, whatever assets he has that have value, he could basically tell the bank you know, give them whatever they need and use my assets as your collateral. Yeah. Yeah. And then Nathan wants him to shut it down, despite the fact that Bosworth's willing to put up his house. And at this point, I just thought Bosworth's in, like he He believes in the vision. I think this reinforces the punch that he gave Kenny on behalf of Joe. Mm -hmm. I really think he's in on this project. It's not just a project for profit. It's the future. He wants to be a part of something big. And he knows it's close. He knows it's only a few weeks away from potentially really getting this in front of people. So it's mm-hmm. not like they're in the beginning. They're at, you know, they're at the end and almost at the finish line. But the only thing holding them back is a little bit of money. So he's willing yeah. to take that chance. But, you know, Nathan says the one thing that every film producer has ever said, which is rule number one, you don't risk your own money. And it's, it's right. kind of true. But at the same time, sometimes you do have to believe in yourself and believe in the project that you're working on. And if you do, you'll reap the rewards. Bosworth is in. And if they had GoFundMe or Indiegogo or right. uh, Kickstarter, this would they, be the way could, to do it. Uh, that's right. Back at the art exhibit, Joe confronts Simon Tells him it doesn't matter if he wants to build the case. 
I think they find some resolution. I think Joe kind of lets him know, listen, this is this is now. This isn't then. Meanwhile, Cameron's drunk and she it's just uh cuz she's just getting getting lit uh she and her yeah. <laughs> um street streetwise friend are enjoying the uh, the festivities there. And she repeats the line that Joe said earlier about I don't know if it's about Simon or if it's about the bartender where she says that guy just messes me up sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then uh, back at the hotel, Hunt puts two and two together as he and Donna are going up to their separate, separate, separate hotel rooms. Right. I uh, just want to reiterate that. In the elevator, he puts the this elevator. together. Yeah. Yes. And he realizes that Donna was instrumental in recovering the BIOS code. I love that he says, you should be Susan Fairchild more often. She's fun. But then he <laughs> elaborates fun. on that. Yeah. And he says, showing people who you are, being bolder, you should do that more often. And I think this is kind of reinforcing the piano moment in the scene right. earlier in the series where she is a different person. She's not the wife, just the wife of, of Gordon Clark. She's not just the mother of his two children. Those are good things. But that she does have a side that is more bold. It could be bolder. could be more relaxed, right. a lot more fun. And that, that makes her feel good. Yeah. And I just want to read you my notes that I put down at this section. Because this is when Hunt leaves the elevator and the door closes. And I wrote down, oh, so glad nothing happened between them. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, like, for sure, this was going to be the, the moment where someone you know leans in for a kiss or does something inappropriate because they had perhaps a little too much to drink and i was like oh thank goodness hunt didn't do something inappropriate how wrong i thought I the was. same thing <laughs> I, I thought the same thing and the fact that because he didn't do it as close as right. he was physically you would expect to her. him to do it yeah yeah exactly he seemed like the sort of somewhat predatory boss that was trying to get a little something from his his subordinate and it was kind of the opposite here. Yeah. Um, kind of shocked to say, but yeah, he essentially turned her away when she kissed him. So I guess good for him, you know? <laughs> for, mm -hmm. He is married, right? Because I, I believe he, he has is. his own family. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I made that comment about how he was holding the phone, talking to her with his hand with the wedding ring, and when he started right. talking about more personal right, stuff, he switched. Right, right, That's right. Mm -hmm. But clearly my theory is blown because, you know, he does not <laughs> acquiesce to her physical request as he's right. delivering and he even facts. makes a comment i think regarding how like you think about these things but you don't act on them so clearly he's thought about it but he's just not going to act on it she did she clearly acted on it and yeah. i guess you could use the excuse that she had was drunk and away from home and all this kind of stuff and that she felt good about his compliments that he was giving her so so basically what happens is they're in their hotel rooms, individual hotel rooms now, and Donna hears a knock at the door and opens the door, and there's Hunt, who really had not shown up to do anything but to deliver a fax from her husband. And that's where it's even worse, <laughs> because she just feels so guilty, I'm sure, to the point that she has to call the concierge to get a car so she can drive home immediately and not even wait for the flight home the next morning. Yeah, yeah. Called that French guy, Mr. Concierge. Oh, yeah, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Gordon's house, things are not getting any better. He's still bleeding, which I'm yeah. wondering at some point, how deep is this cut? Do you not have Band-Aids? Do you not have water? 
Uh, well, I guess you don't have water since you've ruined the sink. The girls are outside digging for the giant. This is where things just, if things were going off the rails earlier, this is when they completely fell off the tracks for me because I thought, are we in a horror movie? Are we in some kind of alternate universe? I would not expect his daughters to be outside after bedtime digging for a giant. He notices them. He comes out and he's like, it's not real. It's just a story. And then they notice his cut hand and one of his daughters says, daddy, are you okay? And he said, I'll be right back. Oh my God, is he going to kill his daughters? What's happening? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. This takes a dark turn, apparently. Yeah, and it, it all kind of gives me a little bit of a a vibe of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where Richard Dreyfus is just kind of going off the deep end, obsessively trying to build the Devil's Tower model in the house, and the kids are kind of running around. And it's just, yeah, it, there's a little bit of that, that that I'm getting from this this episode. Back in Bosworth's office, he signs the divorce papers. He picks up a magazine, and he notices this thing at the bottom that says, quote, 414 Hacker Neil Patrick. And he makes a phone call to someone. This is the other mystery that I was like, oh, my gosh, who is this? Who is Neil Patrick? And who is he calling to say, I need you to call me when you get in? Yeah, clearly this cover of Newsweek, which, by the way, is a real is a real issue from September 5th, 1983. I found a copy on eBay you can buy. I did not buy it, but it's just fun to see that that was a, a real issue and clearly a real cover. So clearly this person, this Neil Patrick, who's being featured on the cover, gave Boz an idea. Now, who he called as a result of that, that's why I said I want to keep watching because we don't get any resolution at all <laughs> in this episode. Yeah. We do get resolution with Joe and Simon in the next scene with yes. them being outside the hotel, I guess, that Simon's staying at. I like that Joe says, what we had is in the past. Why bother with that? The delivery of that line is so cool because it's very matter of fact. It's not dismissive, but it's very much like what we had is in the past. Why bother right. with that? And that's when Simon confesses that he's sick. I guess we're to assume it's AIDS or HIV I mean, it's the 80s. Yeah. And... It would be the right time. Yeah. When people weren't really sure what it was yet, you know, there was still a very unknown virus at that point. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it seems like the most likely because he doesn't say what it is. I mean, it could be cancer, but it seems like based on the time frame, that's probably what it was. Yeah. And then he agrees to do the case. He said he set it up weeks ago. I don't know what that means, right. <laughs> but he agrees to do the case. There's another great shot in the cab with Cameron close up just like before and Joe and Simon in the background, but it's, it works a little differently. There's no words. Like we don't get to hear what Joe and Simon are saying. We're seeing their actions in a slightly Mm -hmm. blurred effect where I think that's what she's sort of seeing. Right. And she kind of thinks Joe is getting back together with Simon. So she tells the cabbie, you know, let's go, let's do this. Yeah. Because they are, they're kind of embracing as they say goodbye. So she doesn't know, you know, she's like, oh, maybe they're making up. Maybe they're going to get back together. Yeah. So she feels she's crying in this scene. I don't think we've seen her this upset, like emotional yet. And then, like you said, she, she tells the cab driver to leave. And as they start to pull away, And she's crying still. She's visibly upset. You just look through the windshield, through the rear windshield, you see Joe <laughs> running after the cab. And he catches up, which is Of course he does, because he's like seven feet tall. His I know. wife could just take him. He took five steps, and he was yeah. back at the cab. <laughs> and he's like already inside, sitting next to her. Yeah. And, and it was a and nice she, scene, because he kind of embraces her then. And I think she understands mm-hmm. 
without him even saying anything that that's over, but he had to kind of get closure with it. But she asked the question, are you going to get bored with me? I didn't expect him to say, I don't know. Yeah. But I like it. It's an honest answer. And she doesn't remiss him. She doesn't. No, no. Fain. She kind of accepts it. I like it too, because he is being honest, but only because he doesn't want to. I think he wants to give her a chance to get out of it and not be hurt the way maybe he and Simon fell apart. So maybe he's trying to be like, listen, I I can't tell you I won't get bored of this, but why don't we just enjoy what we have while we have it? That's kind of what I took away. And I think she understands that like, okay, and let's just, we'll have each other. We'll comfort each other now. And we'll, whatever tomorrow brings, tomorrow brings. Tomorrow's going to bring shock treatments, apparently. Yeah. Because that's how they get their kicks as a couple. (laughs) Yeah. Are you going to get bored with me? Not as long as you shock me every few weeks. We're good. Anyway, (laughs) the, uh, the episode finishes out at Gordon's house. Donna comes home. She's rented that car. She comes home. And dude, it felt like a murder took place. The way like stuff is scattered all over the place, blood on the floor. I'm like, right. A lot of blood. Like there's a a lot lot. of blood. So Gordon should be passed out from lack of blood, but (laughs) (laughs) and she sees her daughter on the floor. And I thought her daughter was dead. I thought, did Gordon kill her? What happened here? (laughs) Right. I, (laughs) I mean, all these thoughts are going through my head and apparently that was, you know, intentional by the writers and the director and his people, because I mean, we're confused just like Gordon is. Yeah. And so I think it's hilarious that she wakes her daughter up and she finds out where her husband is. She's like, okay, go back to sleep. Like, take her to her room. Don't let, right. her, let her sleep on the and floor. And where's the other one? That's just one of your kids, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like, I remember I remember having two. Yeah. But the, I just wrote in my notes that she leaves home for one night and this is what she comes home to. I mean, and not even a full night. You know, she came home early. And somehow yeah. her husband managed to destroy the house, have blood everywhere. Her kids are like sleeping in the middle of the living room on the floor. And he's in the backyard digging a giant hole. <laughs> it's like it's not really a giant hole. I mean, it looks like a like a coffin. Oh, hole, it does. It yeah. Is. I mean, it's, it looks that's perfectly true. rectangular. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's how the <laughs> episode ends. I know. Like he's digging his own grave digging his own grave that's exactly yeah. what i thought <laughs> hoping his other daughter's not in there with him i mean that would just that would really cinch it for me as being like this has turned into a really awkward show yeah <laughs> let's halt at this point let's not catch fire let's just halt right <laughs> yeah the show got canceled after that after that exactly we just yeah. <laughs> seven episodes and we're good <laughs> well that's going to wrap up this episode of an original series without holes being dug or us bleeding so that's a yes. positive thing we can leave you with. Adam, uh, what's coming up next? Uh, next up is episode eight of season one. And this one is called The Two Fourteens or The Two One Fours, however you want to say it. Again, no context. So I don't know what that refers to exactly. You might have a clue if you recall after nope. watching this Not at all. decades ago, back when you were when you first watched it back in 1983. Oh, I know it was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> I know you were only like four or five. Yeah, yeah. I <laughs> used a DeLorean that Simon worked on, but it didn't take me back that far. So it was kind of yeah. a faulty one. Kept breaking down every uh, every hundred miles of time travel. <laughs> of time travel, yeah. Of time or travel. or every ten years, approximately. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, thank you guys for tuning in and joining this conversation as always. I'm Patch. He's Adam. And we are out of here.